Hi everybody, welcome to the Education Council's podcast, Teaching Today. This is your host, Francesca Hilbron. Each month we'll speak to experts from the education sector for insight and discussion on issues and ideas. It's a podcast about teachers, with teachers and for teachers. Cost-cutting dressed-up as innovation, battery farming classrooms or open flexible environments that reflect the future of education. Welcome to the Education Council's podcast on modern learning environments, MLEs, also known as innovative or flexible learning environments. Today I'm joined by a four-person panel bringing you a wealth of knowledge and perspectives on MLEs and what they mean for the future of education in Aotearoa and in fact what they mean for us today. And I'd like to welcome our panellists and ask you, Leslie, uh, to start the introductions and tell us what MLEs mean to you. Kia ora koutou, ko Leslie Marahi tōku ingoa, ko o te timuaki o te kura o Amesbury. I'm Leslie, I'm from Amesbury School. MLEs mean meeting the needs of every single student. Kia ora, I'm Mark Osborne, I'm a teacher by background, I work as a consultant across the country. MLEs, ILEs for me simply mean spaces that are fit for purpose. I'm Bobby Hunter and I am an ex-teacher but work at Massey University now. MLEs mean something that is challenging and complex and it can be very exciting. Uh, Kia ora, uh, I'm Mark Wilson, I'm the principal of Kashmir High School in Christchurch. It's a large uh, secondary school. MLEs for me, uh, really I sort of see it as a bit of a, a spectrum word in the sense that there's uh, some quite um, uh, differing views and perspectives in terms of what it can actually mean. It's often uh, quite a loaded word as well because it's got particular associations with particular pedagogies and approaches. Excellent, thank you very much and, and welcome again. I think it's important we set the scene because we'll have a variety of listeners out there who have different ideas of what MLEs are mm. and knowledge. So Mark, Mark Osborne, can you describe briefly for our listeners, in New Zealand, what do we mean when we're talking about MLEs? Well, we mean lots of different things, don't we? Just the, the whole acronym salad of MLE, I-L-E, F-L-E, sometimes called C-L-E, Collaborative Learning Environments. In my mind, MLEs, I actually prefer innovative learning environment. Modern just means new. And so you can build a brand new version of something that's very old or traditional or a brand new version of something that's different. So actually modern's not that useful. The reason that I prefer innovative learning environments is that innovative, the way that it's defined internationally, simply means that the physical environment can adjust and change as our needs change, the, the needs of teachers, the needs of students. And I personally think that any, any building that's fixed in a single way of doing things, either permanently open or permanently closed or only able to offer large spaces or, or small spaces, I actually think are, is um, quite unhelpful for teachers because we know that we need a range of different modes of teaching and different ways to operate. And so when we're talking about an Aotearoa of MLEs or ILEs, what I hope we're doing is talking about the, the physical spaces and the flexibility that they offer both teachers and students to engage in the sort of learning that, that we value. So that's certainly the point of the ministry, and we know that they call them ILEs, and, and for this podcast we will stick to MLEs. But Mark, Mark Wilson, from your professional reflections and research, can you tell us what prompted the shift to MLEs, or in fact to the, back to the idea of MLEs, I think back in 2010 by the ministry? Yeah, my understanding from my research is the concept of an MLE is um, quite a, a New Zealand word. I'm not 
familiar of it being used internationally. Often they talk about 21st century learning. And back in 2010, the um, Ministry of Education's property people were looking at uh, new designs and quality standards. And so they came up with specifications, including modern learning environments, as we're aware schools are grappling with leaky buildings and in, Earth, in Christchurch, where I'm from, obviously, the rebuild of schools there. And so they were also looking at you know, design and quality standards for buildings. And nobody's going to be disputing that improvements in the quality of physical spaces clearly improves educational outcomes. So if you can improve the sound, the temperature, the lighting, those sorts of things, the quality of the environment, that enhances the learning for the students and obviously the workplace for staff as well. Um, associated with MLE is the whole pedagogical aspect as well, which has been building up you know, internationally in terms of philosophies and views about how schools um, could better prepare children for the future. So there is sort of quite a revolutionary movement associated with that. And like all revolutions, I think there's some really valid ideas that actually underpin it. You know, the idea of better transparency, uh, collaboration, blending in digital technologies, um, having student voice or student agency, flexible spaces, those sorts of things as well. And I think everyone would endorse those. Uh, where we probably start to shift along the spectrum is around implementation and how is that actually put into practice. And just as we have a, a wide variety of school types in New Zealand, I think we've got a wide range of applications in terms of how people have put that into place. And that reflects basic values and assumptions that people have behind their educational philosophies as well. So if we look at that, that idea around <coughs> those values, and Bobby, I've read before that you've said MLEs are a fad. We tried it in the 1970s. It didn't work then. Perhaps why will it work now? What do you think the role is in terms of research and evidence in the current thinking about MLAs? How important is it? Have we done enough? I don't think we actually have done enough. I think that we put these buildings in place just as Mark said, but we didn't put professional development in place behind it. So we didn't actually give teachers the chance to even develop the skills that are needed for the 21st century. And so consequently... We have a lot of MLEs still being used like single-cell classrooms because the teachers don't actually really understand what this all means or how to use it. And in fact, I've seen some classrooms go backwards and become even more rigid because they're in the bigger space and so on. So I imagine, Leslie, you've probably got something to say around that because you know, everyone around this table, I'm sure, agrees that it's the quality of teaching that has the biggest impact on learners and Leslie you've been a leader in a purpose-built MLE school for the last six years from what I see you're a great advocate of focusing on teacher development that you talk about Bobby and you're quoted as saying that students needs are always changing and that the architecture enables us to be responsive to their needs what do you mean by architecture being an enabler for that? I actually don't talk a lot about architecture generally, so I take a slightly different approach to Mark in that I um, talk about the purpose of education and then how the architecture supports the purpose of education. So the purpose of education, the pedagogy that's going to enable that purpose uh, to come into being and then the the architecture uh, that may support it, but actually I think MLEs can be anywhere. For me, MLE is actually about a state of mind and a way of thinking about education rather than about a a physical environment. If I go back to um, before I was foundation principal of a purpose-built MLE, before that in a DSL 1 school, we created um, an MLE before the name was even 
coined really to meet the needs of kids. And what we developed then was a way of working where we just kept on saying what's not working for which children. So it became very evidence-based. It was about what's not working, who is this not working for, who's being advantaged by it, who's being disadvantaged by it, and what can we do about that. So the architecture, which can, is more flexible, can enable us to create a wider range of programs and changing array of programs to meet the individual needs. So Mark, do you see a difference in terms of pedagogy in the traditional learning environment, single-cell learning environment, and then what we might expect in an MLE? Yes, um, because your environment does dictate and influence how you're going to be able to work and operate. My concern sometimes is a open plan environment can actually be less flexible, potentially, because it actually forces teachers into a particular type of pedagogy. So they have to work collaboratively because they've got to share a large space together. It also means the type of pedagogy that they're able to use is fairly limited as well and it tends to see them uh, using uh, teaching inquiry a lot and project-based learning and so they can default to that. Equally, you could sort of say in a a cellular classroom you can have more um, teacher-directed instruction and those sorts of pedagogical practices, more traditional things occurring as well. I think we've also got be careful that we don't talk about an either or. Our school has just entered in a a phase of rebuilding as part of our Christchurch Schools rebuild program with the Ministry of Education and I'd like to say we're taking what I would call more of a middle road because it's the best of both. I think we can be progressive and innovative which is what New Zealand education is known for but my worry is in um, many of the MLE environments that I've seen is that they've abandoned uh, what is actually really strong evidence-based, evidence-proven teaching practice. I've been into MLE schools where they've said that they will not have direct instruction and these types of things. And as Hattie, John Hattie's you know, research clearly shows, you know, the most effective teaching is um, an activator, not a facilitator. And I think a lot of those good teaching practices are getting lost. Just to finish off on that little rant, C.S. Lewis has got a famous quote about chronological snobbery, and I think we can see it playing out in terms of what's happening. And what that refers to is in a modern age, people can think only modern ideas are valid or important, and then you can easily dismiss old ideas and old practices out of date. And I've really seen that happening in education, and that alarms me. So, so stretching that a little bit further, Bobby, from your work, many people would say in New Zealand now, we continue to fail groups, you know, certain groups of learners year on year. What we're doing now isn't working. What are your views on that in terms of your Pacifica and Māori students and how the MLE environment, the physical environment, might distract or support progress for them? I think that we've always got to consider glue ear, for one, hearing, and so noise level for a lot of those students. You know, that that's one consideration schools would have to give. And so you would hope that they have something like um, sound fields or you know microphones. You know there, there are ways to overcome that that should not be a problem. Other than that, Māori and Pacifica students are actually a collaborative, collective group. So an MLE should suit them because they're able to work with family within a family environment. But the big problem again, and I'll go back to this over and over, is teacher professional development. It takes a long time to get teachers to see from the perspective of those students what their learning needs are. They try very hard. Teachers have all the best will in the world to do that, 
but they aren't them and they have to really take another view of them to be able to understand them. And so consequently, they can inadvertently lose out because these are the children who don't speak up, who won't actually push themselves forward. They'll only do it as a collective. So there are two sides to it. So if, if a school is running really well and they are really building on the collective, then you've got a really good environment. If a school has a group of teachers who haven't actually had the professional support to learn how to do that. And you can't just leave that within the school either. Ministry has to come forward and do some really good work on developing teachers in terms of this. So what are you hearing, Mark, when you're out there as a consultant working in the implementation and design of MLEs? Are you hearing similar things? Because you visit schools, don't you, and talk to them about what MLEs mean and look like. Absolutely. That's certainly what I'm hearing. And it's also supported by the research. There's pretty clear evidence that in order to support a community through a transition from the buildings that might have been around for some time to something that's different and new, professional development, professional learning, teacher professional learning has to be at the heart of it. What we're asking people to do is shift practice, maybe embark on strategies or or implement strategies that haven't necessarily been available to them in the past because of the design of of a physical environment, and they need support to be able to do that. So I'd absolutely endorse what what Bobby's saying. The, The other things that are important are the importance of helping the community to understand what's going on. Not not the shifts in buildings, but the shifts in education, teaching and learning. Our vision for teaching and learning, the, the research that we have about pedagogy and curriculum, what works and what doesn't work, to help them understand the changes that are, that are taking place. And that's um, done, it's done well in some contexts, but I've also seen it done really poorly where we're not bringing the community with us and they don't understand and walk into an environment that they don't, that is not familiar to them, they don't recognise and they uh, make it find it difficult to be able to make sense of what's going on. But the other thing is the importance of ensuring that the, the actual physical design adheres to the principles that we know are effective in environments. And there are, there's a broad spectrum of designs in place across the country, uh, some of which work very, very well and some of which are actually very poorly designed, possibly because of a lack of understanding of the principles of effective design, but possibly also because of the, some of the limitations in trying to take some buildings that are 50, 100 years old and try to make the most of them to try to um, line up with those those principles. So those those three areas, you know, research-led design, inclusive user-centered design, community participation and engagement, and absolutely teacher professional learning should be at the heart of any sort of process that people go through. So Leslie, how are you doing this stuff that, that Mark's talking about? Because from what I have read, it sounds like you are doing things quite successfully at your school in terms of the MLE design, professional support for teachers and engagement with mm. communities. I think, can I just go back to the comment around direct teacher instruction um, that Mark made? And there is a view out there that MLEs don't do direct teacher instruction, and I want to say that that's simply not true. Um, that maybe some do and some don't, and I think we need to be clear about that because that's been assumed, and that's, we've been accused of that, and it absolutely isn't true. Direct teacher instruction is, is at the heart of what we do. But what we realised very early on was that like the curriculum has kind of the tra- traditional approach to education at the back end, and the front end is, is a progressivist approach. Um, we need both of those, and we don't need both of those 
in a middling sort of way, we actually need to be doing both of those incredibly well. And for me, that's the big challenge. But it's not just a challenge for modern learning environments. It's actually a challenge for education, that we need those traditional skills, you know, like direct instruction, done incredibly well, but it needs to be done efficiently so that there's time to get into the deep thinking around, um, you know, and deep discussion around critical thinking and post-formal thinking going even deeper. So I, I don't think that they're just, they're not just challenges for MLEs. They become really obvious in an MLE. They're actually challenges for education because we know culturally responsive teaching has been something that's been talked around for a long, long time. And are we doing it any, where, where are we doing it? Are um, you providing your teachers with any different kind of support than you did in a traditional setting? I mean, I think we're trying to cover a lot of things. I think we're, I mean, we're doing a lot of work around just having really high levels of curriculum knowledge because we think that in the way that we work, we need to have high levels of curriculum knowledge. Kids are entitled to be taught the whole curriculum. It's not okay for teachers to teach what they know and not teach what they don't know. Now, that's what anybody you know, could be saying in education. So we do a lot of work around that. So taking that point, Mark, your school down in Christchurch, you have negotiated some aspects of MLEs and, and some aspects you haven't. And I understand the part that you haven't is around that collaborative teaching that your school made a decision that you wouldn't go down that track. We uh, have a highly collaborative staff, but not necessarily in the way of an MLE mode of thinking. Collaboration in a typical um, MLE environment, or a stereotypical, should I say, is that teachers are going to be working in groups um, together. Uh, that often then forces them to be uh, working in a cross-curricular involvement and with you know large numbers of students. We don't believe that that is a, um, an effective, and it's certainly not an evidence-based um, way of teaching in a secondary context when you need a lot of specialised curriculum skills and knowledge as well. Our collaboration occurs in particular within curriculum learning areas. We're a large school, you know, we have over 150 staff, they work um, exceptionally well together within their curriculum areas in terms of their planning, their uh, marking, their moderation, those sorts of things in terms of their uh, lesson observations, appraisal systems and those in, in professional development. So there's a huge amount of collaboration that is actually going on which is really effective and is improving the teaching within that sort of situation. So again it's how you action or you implement um, those concepts or designs. So, so you've got a modern learning environment in terms of infrastructure or you're heading that way? Yep, I mean we have, um, we are continuing to have cellular classrooms um, but then the transparency is important so you put glass into those as well, you have sliding doors so they can move into some breakout spaces so rather than having narrow little corridors you have wider spaces for breakout areas and those sort of things as well so you try and get the best of everything in terms of areas that can you know can be closed up, used in different ways, opened up, those sorts of things as well. So from your report that you did in 2015, you, yep. you took a sabbatical and did you know, quite intensive work around this, and then your, I think your new buildings... We're, we're halfway through the project at the moment. So yep. you had some open in January this year? Ah, correct, yeah. first stage, yes. Any change in your thinking since you've... Um, no, it's probably been reinforced. I also had the, the, the privilege of having a Wolf Fisher this year and I've been and visited a lot of schools internationally as well. And one of the things I would like to also point out is one of the concerns I have around the big 
push about MLE is, is if there's some sort of crisis in our schools and we're not catering uh, for our students. And I actually think that's um, a real tragedy and it doesn't actually help our profession, our teacher supply and uh, you know what our schools are actually trying to do. If you look at the research, the Teaching and Learning International study ranked New Zealand fourth in terms of our teacher professionalism. Recently the World Economic Forum ranked New Zealand seventh in terms of the quality of our education and first in terms of how well our teachers are using the internet and digital technology within um, learning. So we're doing amazing things and even when I visit schools overseas I'm actually often underwhelmed and really impressed with what we're actually doing here. You know the innovation, so you know there's a lot of good stuff that's actually happening in our schools and we don't need to throw the baby out with the bathwater cliche. Touching on Bobby's point around professional development, either of you as as current practicing principals, leaders, do you see a need for a different kind of professional development? Do we need more professional development for the new environment? I mean, we certainly have realised increasingly that we have to do a much bigger induction. We have to release teachers for that to happen. So we've got quite a strong induction programme for new teachers. Alongside that, we have coaching partnerships, um, coaching going on with every teacher in multiple different ways, actually. For some, it's coaching leadership. For others, it's coaching them about their practice. Um, So we've got very differentiated, um, personalised learning to meet the needs of the different teachers, depending on where they're at in the kind of journey of becoming inducted into or part of an MLE. That sounds like a very pragmatic thing you'd want to do regardless just having that, be able to privilege that time for your, yeah. for your teachers. I think, I mean, that's something that I've, we've always done, but I think we're doing it more. We're doing it more in a more personalised way. And we're looking at the whole team and saying, who needs to work with them around this? Who needs to work with them around that? And so that is the advantage of the, the team approach so that we can utilise strengths. So Mark, what advice would you give to principals, leaders, teachers when you go out into the community about making a transition from a traditional classroom to a modern learning environment to make it a seamless transition and make sure that teachers are comfortable with that. In terms of the professional development component, I don't think we need to go too far from the best evidence synthesis on teacher professional learning. And that had a whole range of different recommendations for how to get the most out of professional learning. And it's things like ensuring that it's really closely linked to practice. It's not something that happens elsewhere. It's embedded into the context. So it's situated. It's embedded. Ensuring that it's sustained over time. Ensuring that it's collaborative. And and that collaboration involves challenging and exploring assumptions about learning and that's something that you don't necessarily have when you're teaching on your own permanently because you just don't know what you don't know and you're blind to your own assumptions. The professional dialogue that goes around those assumptions when you're able to operate in a collaborative manner with people seeing you in the flow doing the teaching often gives rise to really good understandings of practice and why you implement it. Those are all advantages of working in a collaborative manner, particularly alongside people, not so that there's just an observation that occurs once a term, Mm -hmm. somebody will come in and have a look at what's going on, but that real trust that's built from working closely alongside people that can give rise to the kind of support that is needed when you're going to take a risk in your practice and try something new, potentially that's much more effective, but still contains some sort of nervousness for you as a practitioner. There's a whole range of other things aside from the professional learning that communities can do to to support the process of transitioning or, or changing 
changing their environments, the, the starting point should always be the human beings that are going to use that space. What are their needs? And you begin an inclusive design process to say, who are they? What are their strengths? What are their talents? What do they want to achieve? We put that within the context of the curriculum documents that we have in this country and say, well, what are those, those people trying to achieve? And then we use those understandings to design a whole environment, whether it's physical, cultural, socio-emotional, in order to meet those needs. It needs to be, lots of preparation needs to happen so that people understand why the change is taking place. The, the change in buildings should never be undertaken because somebody down the road has done it or there's been a newspaper article published about it or it's the, it's the flavour of the month. It should only ever be a response to the, the needs of the community and, and the curriculum, the New Zealand curriculum. I saw you nodding your head quite a lot there before Bobby, how does that resonate with what you see in the communities that you work with? I actually agree with what you say, except I was thinking we've got a teacher shortage and it's hitting really, really badly in the low decile schools when you've got constant change of teacher. Like we talk about transient children, we also need to talk about transient teachers because so how does a how do these lower income schools cope with the constant turnover of staff and inducting them into the space. You know, so that's one thing that I think is a challenge out there and we really do need to consider how or what we're going to do about that. The other one though comes back to what you were talking about and that's deprivatisation of practice and that's absolutely confronting for lots of teachers is to be put in a space where everybody else can see what they can do. Is it a good thing, do you think? It's a really good thing, because it makes them think and reflect on their practice. But it is also, and that's why I think you may get teacher turnover sometimes, because teachers don't want to have their practices exposed to others. So presumably, you know, this whole push within the profession to lift the status, move us into that realm of people seeing us as real professionals, this is something that professionals must do, right, on a daily basis. Does that happen for you at your school? Are people comfortable with that kind of engagement? Yeah, you know, I I would agree. You know, I think what we're talking about here about teacher professional development is, you know, is best practice, as, as Mark Osborne was saying. That I don't think is um, especially unique to an MLE environment or a, or a more traditional one. Although traditionally teachers did tend to be very standalone, and you know you were sent to your classroom and to do your thing. But I think across all schools now, there's the recognition of um, how through collaboration, professional development, and appraisals and professional growth is is greatly enhanced. All schools do that, but again in slightly different ways, um, depending on the size of the school and the structure of the school and those sorts of things as well. But lesson observation, you know, and uh, reflecting on those as part of the teaching as an inquiry cycle is pretty common practice in terms of within schools in New Zealand, I would like to think. And you've made some, some earlier comments, uh, Mark, around you know schools having some ownership of what their buildings look like and also the direction of their pedagogy. And you've gone through this process, you're in this process at the moment, yep. for people out there that might be concerned in communities about the requirements to move to a modern environment uh, by 2030 I think it is, 
What advice would you give to schools and communities how they might navigate that? New Zealand's in a really new, unique situation in the sense that um, under the, our legislation, Tomorrow Schools, um, we are very autonomous, you know, crown-owned entities um, as schools. Schools can and you know in, ensure that they stand up and and determine what is the pedagogy that is going to be um, within their environment. Because as what's been alluded here by the various speakers, if you simply just impose a big open plan carpet barn or whatever you'd like to call it in a, in a school environment, unless that's accompanied by good professional development and, and clear uh, educational um, aims and intentions, it can be a disaster because, again, the environment influences uh, the practices that are going to go on within those particular places. So schools need, they're working in those places, they're working and living in those communities, and they need to step up and make sure that they are actively involved in determining what their buildings are going to actually be be like because there is a perception it's getting forced out and rolled out onto people and onto communities Um, and for those who do want to make radical shifts and changes um, I think to be honest they've got to get better at um, the narrative that they're going to be putting together to sell that and to communicate that to their communities because by nature parents are very conservative Um, it's their only children and they don't want them experimented on and they want to know that what is actually going to be happening to their kids is going to be safe, professional and robust and and you can't just say we're professionals, trust us. You've got to actually make sure the narrative is actually done well and again I think that's been variable you know, across schools in terms of how that's um, been done and that's contributed to I think some of the confusion and the anxiety around MLEs as well. That point you make about parents and there's been some <coughs> media coverage around parents actively looking for schools that don't have an MLE environment yep. or want to take my child out. I assume that some of that is around uh, special education. And Leslie, I wanted to ask you, around the environment of MLEs, there is some concern that for children with particular needs, the environment can be very overwhelming and very frightening. How do your teachers manage those learners? Probably very well. I think that you know, with more flexibility, you've got multiple ways to sort things out for those particular children. So, I mean, we have things like pop-up tents in our in our spaces, so that kids who want who have high sensory sensitivity can go into the tent, and then they're not distracted by what they can see. You know, you've got noise dampening headphones. I mean, there's all sorts of ways kids. Kids are allowed to move furniture around, so they create little spaces for themselves. They create caves and, and, and ways to work that work for them. So I think, I think it's about saying, here's a, a difficulty that we're experiencing. Here's a challenge. Now, how do we meet that? And I think that we, I think it, it's it's not right to think that in classrooms, kids don't get distracted. I mean, every time a door opens in a classroom, children look up and see who's coming in. In a modern learning environment, I work in with you know walk in with twenty principals who are having a look and kids just carry on. So I I think that you know we have to solve those problems whether we're traditional classrooms or MLEs Mm -hmm. and certainly my experience with a number of people who had come in as runners in our school no one's run. Runners meaning? That they take off. Literally run. run, um, And they've wanted to put fences up because I think that when you've got a a more open environment um, and, and children are used to a little bit more happening around them, then they're not distracted when when a, a child you know 
behaves in particular ways that might otherwise be incredibly it distracting. What, what we do in early childhood, right? Is it similar to an, an MLE mm. or it is an MLE? Would that be fair to say? Yeah. And is there anything in particular, Mark, that we could learn from that existing environment that they've used for, for many years? Yeah, the, the early yeah. childhood centres are the original MLEs, if you like. And what's, what I find fascinating is the assumption that if you're four and 11 months, yeah. a certain way of operating is okay. And as soon as you turn five, you need to have a whole different way of operating. And I think the conversation between early childhoods and, and understanding what they do, why they do it, the principles that are at play in Te Whariki, their curriculum document, and how those can, can flow into the early years of a primary education are really important. So so greater conversation between the different sectors, the different groups in, in our education system. But again, I'll come back to the, the importance of of inclusive design. People who may be overstimulated in an environment, as Leslie said, the design should have places that are low stimulus zones where you can go and, and decompress. Bobby mentioned assistive technology like sound fields and sound loops for, for students who need auditory support. It has to be, if we miss the opportunity, if we're spending an awful lot of money building a building and we're still shutting out the same people who are shut out in the traditional classroom, we've squandered a fantastic opportunity. So it has to start from the needs of those, those students. There are kids, as Bobby mentioned before, who really enjoy working in whānau groups, not necessarily stratified by year level, but there are other kids for whom that doesn't work. And so what we have to do is not lock ourselves into a single mode of operation. We need the flexibility to be able to cope with or to respond to the needs of every learner. Bobby, you made a comment again, I think it was in the media, around some concerns of MLEs and children or young people have the potential to having to form relationships with more than one teacher and that might be a challenge for them. Yeah, I, I do. That? I think that that is a challenge actually. That is mm-hmm. one of the challenges for a lot of children in MLEs and like I was probably thinking of Christchurch in particular where we've got probably the most vulnerable children at the moment. If there are not structures in place for them to, to allow them to relate to one particular person and build very strong relationships, they build relationships with nobody. That's got to be in place. But and and likewise I think all around New Zealand actually, you know, I think we've got that always that potential and I guess it goes back to what I was saying earlier about Māori and Pacifica and teachers understanding not just Māori and Pacifica but who their learner is in front of them and what their unique needs are and how they need to help them to participate. And if they don't, then those students aren't going to be able to. So relationships are always at risk. And and I think that we, we might say, oh, yes, but you know that they're at risk in a single-cell classroom. Not as much. I think in a group of 90 children, you can lose children. You know, I think there are children, unless the teacher is consciously, really, all of those teachers are consciously saying, am I getting, touching every child today? Do you agree with that, Leslie, in your experience? I think we have a, we've had, for a long time, we've had a 20% tail in achievement. It suggests, and that's come out of traditional schooling, so that suggests that there are children in every school in New Zealand whose needs are not being met. Our, our children would say that having a team of teachers you know, sort of in the area within which they work, means that they can choose who they connect with. Um, they're not stuck in a classroom with one teacher who actually they don't really get on with. And so we have ways of checking that children are connected 
um, we do surveys and we ask them who they connect with, who they would go to. Do you feel that there's people that you can go to? So we check all that, those sorts of things. But children will choose someone who might not even be their teacher. Sometimes it's even the office staff is the person who's special to them, who they go and touch base with when they feel that they need to. So I think actually that's an added advantage of MLEs is that children have a variety of people that they can connect with as long as the teachers are available to, you know, to them um, for connection. It sounds very much like to me that we, you know, in New Zealand we do have a really great opportunity because it seems to me that not one size fits all in MLEs and we have got, as you've showed uh, down in Christchurch, Mark, that you have the opportunity to mix and match what suits you and your community. Communities need to be engaged, teachers need to be engaged on what that looks like. So it is time for us to wrap up our discussion and I'd like to say thanks to each of you for sharing your expertise and your insights but particularly also your passion for this which I think is really exciting for our teachers out there. Before we go I would like to give you the opportunity for one last thing to say and I would like to hear from you if there is one thing that you would change around the MLE discussion or one thing that you would like to keep and if I could go to my right Mark Wilson that would be great. Perhaps just um, my thoughts are just sort of um, being triggered by some of the others we're just saying a moment again ago. You know, the original MLE would have been your early childhood centres, and um, I think they've been it's been picked up obviously within primary schools. I think my concern is that the type of MLE that sort of seems to be getting promoted or pushed out is essentially a primary-based teaching pedagogy and approach, which is not well suited in particular to senior high school where there is some specialist knowledge, specialist curriculum areas that the kids need to be introduced to and broadened out into and that therefore some of the physical designs and some of the philosophical thinking that underpins MLE is not well suited in my opinion. Uh, in my professional opinion, to secondary uh, school environments. But that doesn't mean to say that it's an either-or debate here. You know, there is there are really sound um, principles and ideas around 21st century learning, uh, and we need to incorporate some of those innovative ideas into what we know is um, strong, good teaching practice uh, that we've, we've always had, and, you know, to be able to give the best um, for our students. Excellent. I've heard that, that it's not either or from you earlier, so that's a really good point. Thank you, Bobby. I'd like to see equity in the buildings. I'd like to see that the schools that are high poverty have access to the same funding that high decile schools have in terms of what they can get from their parent community. So yeah, they all start with the same ministry money, but they don't end up with the same product because schools that can actually put in extra money are able to do that, but these schools can't. And so they do end up with what you call barns, you know, and they don't have all the flexibility and they don't have, you know, and so they have an, an added challenge. You know, even sound fields becomes a challenge for them to get up. Mm-hmm. So I'd yeah. like to see that addressed by the government. Kilda to that. The thing I'd like to keep and the thing I'd like to discard are actually related. The thing I'd like to really keep is a focus on research into what works so that we're not just basing our decisions on assumptions or um, things that are not necessarily well, well based in research. And the thing I'd like to discard is the variability in how that's applied because some people do that very well across the country and others are not doing that well. So in order to improve the quality of the conversation around this whole area, 
I think it's important that we have really good, solid reasons for making the decisions that we make. I guess I would like to get rid of the binary nature of the conversation because I think it masks what the real issue is, which is equity. And, you know, what we need to do is keep exploring how we continue or how we better meet the needs of every student. We're not there yet. We know we need to be there. We've opened a Pandora's box and we can't go back. We can't shove all those ideas back in again and and go forward blindly. We do have to move forward. And so, you know, we need to keep exploring how we do this in a way that meets the needs of every student and ensures equity right across the country. And that wraps up this episode of Teaching Today podcast. Thanks to all our panel members for their insight and their time, and thanks to you out there listening. Please join the discussion on our social media platforms and keep a lookout for upcoming podcasts posted on our website, educationcouncil.org.nz.